0: This is Positive Parenting, parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat.
1: Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, the founder of MrDad.com. If you or someone you love grew up with an emotionally unavailable, narcissistic, or selfish parent, you probably struggle with residual feelings of anger, abandonment, loneliness, or shame. Parents can be emotionally unavailable for a variety of reasons. Maybe it was addiction, or mental illness, or just being overly controlling. Whatever it was, if you grew up in a nightmare or a wasteland, instead of having a nurturing childhood, you're definitely going to want to stick around and listen to this show. We're going to be speaking with somebody who's an expert in emotionally unavailable parents who's going to teach us about how to set clear boundaries, how to validate your frustrations and emotional struggles, and how to unmesh yourself and move forward to a place of strength and peace without any guilt. We'll talk about some of the most common types of toxic parents as well as the tactics and tools that you need to change and break free of these painful associations. The truth is that your wounds can be healed and you can move forward. And in this part of today's show, we're going to help you find ways of dealing with your parents' painful legacy so that you don't suffer or pass along emotional unavailability to the next generation. I'm Armin Brott. It all starts when Positive Parenting continues right after this.
0: If you love them enough to listen to them practice the same song on tuba... Please be done. Over and over and over and over and over. Then surely you'll check NHTSA.gov slash the right seat to make sure they're correctly buckled in the back seat. Sounds good, honey. Check today at NHTSA.gov the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Act Council.
1: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad, and my guest for this part of today's show is Bryn Collins, who's the author of the Toxic Parents Survival Guide, Recognizing, Understanding, and Freeing Yourself from These Difficult Relationships. Bryn, thanks for joining us.
2: My pleasure.
1: So why don't you take a minute and tell us a little bit about how you define toxic parents. Uh, There there are a lot of different types of toxic toxic parents or difficult parents, as you call them in the book. Uh, But just give us an overview of of what they look like, and we can get into some of the details as we go on.
2: Well, the toxicity that I talk about arises from parents who don't have a clear idea of what parenting means versus what control means. Um, Parenting is the ability to to pass on knowledge and information and behavioral standards without impairing the the psyche of the child. Um, Bad parenting is imposing stern and strict and and inflexible rules regardless of of the impact they have on the child.
1: Now, couldn't you argue, I think, I remember somebody telling me this in a discussion about uh, something else altogether, and I can't remember what it was, but I, but the, the bottom line of it was, if, if it doesn't really affect your life, it's not a problem. If it doesn't affect your life negatively. And, and we all know that there are lots of stories of people who grow up in, in horrible situations, and they come out just fine. And people who grow up in wonderful situations and come out with scarred psyches somehow uh, so how can you how can you say that I mean it doesn't sound like you can can have a rule or that X parenting activity is is by definition good or bad
2: um, there are some parenting activities um, to use your phrase that are absolutely toxic And those would be the control, the negative control kinds of issues. There are positive control issues that we teach our kids, for example, no is a complete sentence. And so if I say no, if if my child asks me for something and I say no, they understand that that is not open for discussion because I will have said yes to things that I am open to.
1: Um, right, so yes would be so, also a complete sentence. Okay, that, that makes yes, sense. Yes,
2: is also a complete sentence, um, and so if, ch- if a child understands that what a parent says is what they really mean and what they really are, who they really are, um, that helps the child determine that what the parent says is what they mean, and kind of, and by extension. What other people say is what they mean, hypothetically.
1: Okay. Not okay.
2: everyone says what they
1: mean. Okay, so saying what you mean is a good thing. But just you know, just watching the show yesterday, Ozark, um, which I, I just started watching it, so I can't. Yeah, I think it was it was very good. But there was a scene in there where one of the people who's a, one of these horrible drug dealer types is giving a, a little bit of a story before he does some horrible thing. Uh, but he says, you know, when I was a kid, I did something, and I broke the rules, and my dad was really mad at me, and he said, the next time I break the rules, uh, he's going to break my nose. And, you know, a few months later, I broke the rules again. And so, again, I, I'm not picking on you too much, I don't think, but but just the the idea that if if you— say something that following through on it or that you mean what you say is not always a good thing, right?
2: Well, I don't, don't let your mouth write and check that your body won't cash. In other words, but that applies on the, on both sides here. A parent should never threaten violence. Um, that is, that's bad parenting. That's parenting life here. And parenting by fear is a, is a terrible kind of parenting because what it says is, is, is in essence, if you don't do X, then I'm going to hurt you. And you don't want your kids to be cooperating with you out of fear. You want them to cooperate with, out of you, with you, out of a sense that what you are saying is right and that you are the authority figure.
1: Right, that makes perfectly good sense. It's it's just a question of trying to figure out exactly whether there's certain harsher ways of doing things or different stylistic kinds of things. Um, I mean, I I think that I, I'm I'm just digging a little bit here because I think generally speaking, everyone could certainly say that there are, as you said before, there are definitely some things that are toxic, and there are probably definitely some things that are really good. But yeah. there, there's a lot of gray in there, and it's probably going to be a, a sense of whether it it becomes a habit, or that's your your overall style of doing things, or, I mean, everybody every once in a while says, you know, you're not going to come out of your room until you're 18, or just things that just don't, that don't make sense, or we say things that we regret instantly, um, If but if you do that every day, that's a different thing than if you do it once in a while.
2: Exactly. And if you do it once in a while and catch yourself, um, acknowledging that you have caught yourself to the child is a very important thing. Um, saying, you know, I'll, if you if you don't do your homework, I'll bust your head. Um, relatively immediately, as you hear yourself say that, you're kind of like, oh, I wish I would said it that way. And I... I endorsed you then saying out loud to the child, I would never hit you like that. And I would never bust your head. That was the wrong thing for me to say. I want you to want to do your homework because it's how you learn. So how can I inspire you to do your homework? Right. Make the child part of the process um, rather than operating out out of a threat mode.
1: Mm-hmm. So in, in the book, you talk about, I think, one of the biggest issues, which is emotional unavailability. Talk yeah. about that a little bit and in, in what it is and, and what it looks like.
2: Well, the easiest way to explain emotional unavailability is to say it's holding the world at arm's length, not letting anyone in any closer than an arm's length to experience and share your emotions with you, um, and so um, when when someone is emotionally unavailable and they are stepped back essentially from the emotional world that they occupy, um, we have we have a harder time connecting or an impossible time connecting with them because they are stepped back. There's always that arm's length between them and the rest of the world. And so if you are emotionally unavailable, what it means is you are holding the world at arm's length and not letting anyone in, um, in order to get to know you. (laughs) And what we want is for people to want to get to know us. Um, In In, which case, you have to share your emotions and
1: your feelings. Including our children?
2: Absolutely. Children need to know that their parents are authentic. Emotions are part of authenticity. People who are authentic not only feel what they feel, they also can express what they feel by virtue of explanation.
1: Mm -hmm. I've heard a lot of people say, well, my job is not to be my child's friend or buddy, or confidant. My, my job is to guide this child, to raise this child, to instill rules and, and the proper way of doing things. So where do oh, emotions okay. come in there?
2: And I would say that emotions are definitely part of the process of, of learning and connecting with your child. Um, they They need to know how you feel because it's, it becomes obvious to them how you feel. That the that your emotions are are clear to them um, because they are clear to you. People who have the, that sort of muddied um, ten emotions in one basket, none of them being recognized, approach to life um, make it very hard for anyone to figure out what that person is really feeling because they're giving you a whole buffet of of emotions and you're supposed to pick out which dishes you want, or which emotions you want, and in which case it's very hard to do that
1: talking with Bryn Collins, who's the author of The Toxic Parent Survival Guide, Recognizing, Understanding, and Freeing Yourself from These Difficult Relationships. We're going to take a quick break right now, and we will come back in about a minute. And when we do, we'll keep talking to Bryn about toxic parents. I'm Armand Brot, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. 911. What is your emergency? My kid shot himself. All right. Where's the wound? 911.
0: What is your emergency? Please help my son shot his brother. 911. What is your emergency? Uh, 911. Please state your emergency. Every day, eight kids and teens are unintentionally killed or injured by loaded and unlocked guns. It wasn't locked. It wasn't locked. 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 Learn how to make your home safer at endfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and End Family Fire.
1: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat. And if you're just joining us, I'm talking with Bryn Collins, who's the author of The Toxic Parent Survival Guide, Recognizing, Understanding, and Freeing Yourself from Those Difficult Relationships, These Difficult Relationships. Bryn, I want to have you get back a little bit to the emotional side of things. We were just talking about emotional unavailability, but um, I'm wondering if there's another side of it, which is being overly emotional and and relying on your child to help you with your emotional needs. That seems to be, I, I can't say whether it's just as bad, but it seems to be that it—that it, it's not a good thing.
2: Um, it's almost a form of abuse. Um, wanting anyone to do your emotional work for you is is on its surface a bad behavior. Um, it doesn't it, it, it doesn't acknowledge what you really feel. What you're doing is saying, underneath whatever words you're saying, you're saying, yes, I really want you to tell me what my feelings are about this. And, um, and then what happens sometimes is you fall for that bait, and you tell them what you're feeling, what their feelings are, and then they tell you you're wrong.
1: Right, yeah. But that that also would fall into the, the same kind of thing, would fall into the category of, of, well, I just broke up with somebody and, and I need your shoulder child to cry on or you know, th- things things like that where it just puts the, the child in a parenting role or a, a, an adult role that they really shouldn't be in. Absolutely,
2: absolutely. Anything that pushes your kid into... Having to parent you is a very bad idea. We as parents have to maintain that parental role, which is, from the, which is the source of don't be your kid's friend or buddy or pal.
1: Right, right, which is probably the right way to look at it, but there, there's, a, there's a line there between going, going too far to keep them, as you said, at arm's length.
2: Yes, yeah. absolutely. And that's knowing where medium is.
1: Yeah, which is... The
2: difference between too much and too little. Between too much and too little is the correct zone. Yeah. So learning how to find that middle zone is critically important.
1: How do you do that?
2: Well, part of it is knowing what you, knowing you knowing what you feel. And by the by, and that happens because you know what your emotions are. Um, emotions start with the basic four: mad, glad, sad, and scared. Those are those are emotional words that people who are even very disconnected from their emotions can get. If I'm mad, I think even particular ways. I might my voice might be louder. Um, my sentences might be more clipped um, I'm I have an angry look on my face or an angry body position and or an angry body position um, and I say things that that tell you that I'm mad it makes me mad when or I feel mad when um, and same is true of Sad and scared and, and uh, glad, although it's glad we don't often have to explain.
1: Right, that's a pretty easy one, and sad probably don't have to explain too much either. Either. Right. Scared, though, it seems like could come up as any one of those in a way. I mean, scared and, and mad sometimes look the same.
2: They sometimes do, um, although they come from very different places. Scared comes from a place of uh, real fear, um, roller coaster fear, as I call it in the book, which is that that sense of I put myself in a position where I expect to be scared, and so therefore I am scared, um, but in an enjoyable kind of way. Or real fear, real scared. Um, someone's following me, um, I've been accosted, um, any number of things. I'm in a dangerous situation. Um, the re- that real fear uh, arises from interpretation of a particular situation. And that interpretation is what sometimes people get wrong. And so they interpret someone else's behavior as scary behavior when in truth, it's not intended to be scary and so it really isn't scary behavior or it really is scary behavior. If it is scary behavior, there are particular ways to deal with it. If it isn't scary behavior and we interpret it as such, that's where communication goes awry and people say things that from their perspective, makes sense, but overall really don't.
1: So what can you tell parents about how to look at their own behavior, how to assess whether it is falling into the category of toxic on more than an accidental or more than an occasional basis, and what to do about it? Because I think so many people feel doomed in a way to repeat the parenting that they got and aren't yeah. sure how to, how to move beyond that, and even those who move beyond it still might have developed their own toxic way of doing things.
2: Well, I, I think um, I think too much attention to one's own behavior can be a toxic behavior in itself. Um, you don't want to second-guess yourself all the time. But what you do want to do is to pay attention not only to your internal reactions, to, watch, to, to, to you cringe when you say X. If you cringe when you say X, maybe you don't want to say X. <laughs> you want to okay. find a different way to say that. Um, and I lost, in my brain, I lost the second part of that, that analysis. So, um, but what we want to do is to make sure that when we are communicating our feelings, we're communicating clearly. Reflecting our own stuff, which means you have to know what you feel, and interpreting how that impacts the person we're talking to. And so we can modify if we need to. I'm not saying don't talk about your feelings, but sometimes if you're saying something and it's impacting your your listener negatively, that's not going to get you what you want.
1: Exactly, and and that is possibly going to be one of those behaviors that can do some, as you said at the very beginning, do some damage to your child's psyche.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Being consistent is critically important.
1: So what does an emotionally available parent look like?
2: Um, emotionally available parents talk about their feelings. No, Billy. I feel sad when, or Billy, I feel scared when, and then say that the situation that that causes those or that elicits those feelings. Um, It's important that a child knows what feelings they are they are generating in response to their behavior and what your interpretation of those feelings is. So, Billy, I feel sad when you tell me about what goes on at school, and I feel scared that we're not doing the right thing to respond to it.
1: Okay. And that's going to help the child by by what? By letting him know that that you... Care that you have the right feelings, or letting them know that, that, letting you know that it's okay for you, the child, to express your emotions as well, or what's what's the goal of that?
2: Well, that's those are two of the goals of that. Certainly, um, it's it's confirming and affirming that emotions and expression of emotions is a healthy thing, something to be desired rather than a task.
1: Bryn Collins is the author of The Toxic Parent Survival Guide, Recognizing, Understanding, and Freeing Yourself from These Difficult Relationships. Bryn, thanks very much for a thought-provoking book.
2: Well, thank you, Armin. It's a pleasure to join you today.
0: Three, two, one. Oh, no. Which button am I... Uh... When every second counts, you can't wing it. Uh, Guys, a little help up here. In a home fire, you may have less than two minutes to get out. So make a family home fire escape plan. Then practice home fire drills at least twice a year so everyone knows what to do when they hear
3: Prepare your family at ready.gov firedrill fire drill. Brought to you by FEMA, the Ag Council, and Make Safe Happen.
1: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for a Parents at Play segment. Did you know that January was National Puzzle Month, or that January 29th is National Puzzle Day? Well, if not, don't feel bad. Neither did we. But one thing we're quite sure of is that doing puzzles is a wonderful way to spend time with your family. Plus, it's good for you. Whether it's a 1,000 piece jigsaw, a crossword, a Sudoku, or something else, doing puzzles has been shown to increase alertness and concentration improve memory or mood, boost problem-solving abilities and spatial reasoning, and lower stress levels. So in honor of National Puzzle Month, or any other month, here are a few puzzlicious ways to disconnect from our hyper-digital lifestyle, reconnect with your family, and generally improve your life. Puzzle to Relax It's almost impossible to walk by an unfinished puzzle. Typically, people intend to stop for only a few seconds, but 30 to 90 minutes later find that they've lost themselves in the never-ending quest to find just one more piece. When choosing a puzzle to relax, imagery is key. Look for images that make you happy, like puppies, or feel at peace, like African animals. Prices vary greatly depending on piece count, which range from 200 to 9,000 pieces. You can find out more information at ravensburger.us slash products slash jigsaw dash puzzles. Puzzle for Tradition Most families break out a puzzle during the winter months, often as part of their holiday traditions. Choose a puzzle everyone can enjoy and finish. For most families, 1,000 piece puzzles are both a challenge, yet entirely doable over the course of a week or two. Choose a majestic scene like the Yosemite Valley, or better yet, send in a high res photo and create your own 1,000 piece memory with a custom photo puzzle. Prices range from about $16 for a standard 2D puzzle to about $40 for the custom puzzle. Puzzle to connect. Connecting with family often means disconnecting from our digital lifestyle and sharing a common goal, such as the race to find and place the last piece. Working together on a puzzle can open the floodgates to incredible conversations with your children, especially those often hard-to-reach tweens and teens. Have a puzzle on the dining room table of a dreamy destination like New York's Times Square or favorite characters from Disney Pixar to escape together, even if it's only for just a few minutes. Puzzles for fun. Puzzling is something that everyone at any age can enjoy together. It's made more fun, though, when you take the experience from 2D to 3D. Ravensburger's line of 3D puzzles includes the Eiffel Tower, the Statue of Liberty, Big Ben, a VW camper bus, the legendary Porsche 911R, and many others. They're all built to scale and will become treasured multi-generation keepsakes. Prices range from about $29 to $60. Puzzles for Good For some people with autism, puzzles can help calm and stimulate. TCG has an extensive line of puzzles that cover a wide range of themes, from food and photography to nature and nostalgia, and from new hits like Fingerlings to classic skylines. They also come in a variety of sizes, from 200 pieces all the way to 3,000. Since 2016, the company has had a campaign to benefit the autistic community including Autism Speaks and Autism Speaks Canada. Prices vary depending on piece count. Find out more information at tcgtoys.com. You'll find reviews of a bunch more toys, games, activities, and all sorts of other things to do with your kids at our website, parentsatplay.com. We'll be back next week with another great show for you. Hey, but stay right where you are, because there's a lot more of this Positive Parenting show coming right up.
0: More with Mr. Dad. Armin Brott. After this. From the MrDad.com radio network.
1: One in three adults
0: has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man. You
1: Brought to you by the
0: Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners.
3: Opiates has taken everything and everyone I've ever loved away from me. Everything. I blew my ankle out and I got prescribed pain pills by my doctor. If making my detox public is gonna help somebody, I'm all for it. I just wish I would have had a warning
0: opioid dependence can happen after just five days. Know the truth, spread the truth. A message from Truth, the Ad Council, and ONDCP. Now get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network.
1: Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brock, the founder of MrDad.com. Thanks for staying with us. What if I told you that it was possible to stop worrying about money forever? Money is the number one cause of stress for Americans. According to a 2015 study from the American Psychological Association, nearly three-quarters of Americans reported feeling stressed about money at least some of the time— And one in four reported experiencing extreme money stress in the past month. All of this worry is affecting our health. Increased stress leads to unhealthy behaviors such as excessive screen time, overeating, smoking, and drinking. With many Americans putting their health care needs on the back burner when financial worries loom, the money stress illness cycle becomes even more entrenched. It would be bad enough if worrying about money just affected the worrier but financial stress is affecting marriages and other relationships. For example, children of parents who fight about money are reportedly more likely to struggle with credit card debt as young adults. And even if the kids of money-stressed parents are not destined to fall into a debt trap, financial arguments at home can teach kids that money is a fraught and negative topic, making it more difficult for them to learn healthy financial behaviors. The good news is that we've got a solution for you. And in this part of today's show, we're going to show you how you can start ending your financial worries right now. I'm Armin Brock. Stay with us. Hi, we're the Goo Goo Dolls. We're fortunate that our daughters have what they need to grow and learn. But that isn't the case for nearly 13 million kids in the U.S. that struggle with hunger.
0: Childhood hunger is a heartbreaking reality that feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and provides it to families and children in need.
1: You can help kids in need in your community by visiting feedingamerica.org.
3: Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council.
1: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Emily Guy-Burkin, who is the author of End Financial Stress Now, Immediate Steps You Can Take to Improve Your Financial Outlook. Emily, thanks for joining us.
3: Oh, thank you for having me.
1: So what do you think is the biggest issue that parents have with regard to money?
3: Um, I think the biggest issue is that parents uh, don't talk to their kids about money. Uh, So money is kind of like sex and that parents just don't really want to talk to their kids about it. It's uncomfortable. Um, And so there's this sense that's like, Oh, we need to protect our kids um, by not telling them about the stressful things about money or, um, you know, otherwise just not sharing with their kids, you know, how money works. Um, But unfortunately, Kids are smart, they figure things out, um, and they take a lesson from us not talking to them about money that is different from the lesson that we're trying to teach them. So we're trying to shield them from any stress that we might be feeling about money, and instead what they learn is, uh, oh, money is bad because it makes mom and dad feel feel bad.
1: Well, let me just go back a, a couple of generations here, I guess, because if you're, if you're saying that kids get a particular message from parents, then it seems like those those kids, when they grow up, become the parents who do the same thing. So, how, did, how does it ever end?
3: Uh, so the uh, um, and it's interesting you know, talk about going back a few generations. Um, there is a uh, researcher by the name of Dr. Bradley Clance who he coined the term um, "money scripts," um, and what that is is the unconscious beliefs that we carry about money. They're the the stories that we tell ourselves about money. And that's based in uh, the way money was viewed in our home growing up. So um, reason why I say it's interesting to talk about going back a few generations. um, When you talk about, we all know that children of the depression grew up to be quite frugal, um, you know, where they would have a really hard time, um, you know, they'd have hoarding behaviors, they'd have a hard time um, throwing anything out, things like that, because of you know, what if they need it um, after they've, they've gotten rid of it? Um, and so that's because of the lessons that they learned in their childhood, whether they were explicit lessons or implicit lessons. So what happens is, so whether your parents are trying to teach you, parents are trying to teach these lessons to kids, or these are just things that kids are picking up, the kids grow up with these ideas about money, these money scripts in their head, and they react to money because of them. And so either what happens is the money scripts um, do not serve them well, uh, and they get into bad trouble with financially and either have to kind of figure out how to get out of it on their own or just continue to make bad decisions, um, or these are, are money scripts that uh, serve them well in some way but still cause them stress or, or overwhelm in other ways. Uh, in, For instance, the, the children of the Depression, who did learn to be frugal but became... Um, uh, you know, orders or over, otherwise overwhelmed by their feelings about money and um, and and things that they needed.
1: Hmm. So, in the very beginning, you said that kids are growing up with this idea that money is bad or something like that. And how how is it that that we got those ideas in the first place?
3: Uh, well, some of it is uh, comes from the fact that uh, you know, as you know. With a kid, they, they will kind of um, jump to the conclusion that makes sense in their own heads. So, um, for instance, um, if uh, a little kid sees that their friend has a new toy, like, oh, my goodness, that's such a great toy. How much does it cost? And their, their mom says, oh, honey, that's rude. We don't talk about money. Um, they immediately go to, like, oh, it must be bad to talk about money. You know, why is that rude? And they don't necessarily come to the um, uh, the conclusion that, you know, the mom is saying that because they know that that toy came about because uh, the, the other friend's parents are going through a divorce and the father bought the toy and, you know, that it represents something more than the money. Um, the child just comes to the conclusion like, oh, money's bad. I can't talk about money. So, um, and that's the sort of thing where, Because uh, children, again, just kind of uh, they uh, are navigating the world and trying to make sense of things that make perfect sense to an adult but don't necessarily to a kid. And the problem is once these views are entrenched in your head um, when it comes to money, they generally don't come out again. Um, and that's partially because we don't talk about money as a society. So, no. you know, you can ask people, like, what's something silly that you believe when you're a kid? And people will come up with some really hilarious examples um, uh, so, my, for example, I thought the Elgin marbles, um, I thought they were actually marbles. I didn't realize they were made of marble. <laughs> um, and that's the sort of thing, like once I said it out loud at some point and somebody corrected me, oh, okay, that was a silly thing that I thought when I was a kid. Um, And that's the sort of thing where – but with money, because we as a society don't talk about it, these incorrect viewpoints about money become entrenched because um, it's a taboo subject in in our society. And so we get stuck with these views of, oh, money is bad Uh. or money causes shame.
1: All right. So I I probably was raised with the idea about not talking about money, hence this next question, which is – I mean it seems like asking about how much things cost – can be a little rude because it's mm-hmm. not because that there's something ex- rude about that exactly, but you're you're almost getting ready to make some sort of a judgment about whether somebody is rich or poor, or uh, which seems to be a little personal.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, I use that example because I actually I, I had the same sort of thing where I remember asking something like that when I was in, in my teens and my mom being like mortified <laughs> um, because I was definitely also raised with that viewpoint that you don't ask how much something costs. That's a rude thing to ask. Um, the thing to remember, though, is uh, at any time you're raising a child, there are going to be things that they ask that are um, inappropriate or embarrassing to the parent or something like that, and how you respond to that can affect how the child internalizes. Um, so, for instance, you know, I've got uh, two small, small children, and um, uh, you know, if one of them asks uh, someone who is disabled, like, why are you in that wheelchair really loud out in public? Oh boy, am I gonna be embarrassed <laughs> <laughs> um, to, to have him ask that question. But how I respond to it will affect how they see the situation. So, um, you know, responding to it like, oh, we don't ask people those sorts of questions can make it sound like it's shameful to be in a wheelchair Um, And that's, you know, what the child will internalize. But if you say, you know, honey, that's not exactly the right way to ask that question, maybe you could ask a different way, Um, you know, or, uh, you know, there's any number of ways to navigate these difficult situations. But remember that um, shutting down a child's questions about anything um, generally does not end the questions in their head. They continue asking them. They just go, oh, mom or dad does not like it when I ask that question, so there must be right. something wrong with that.
1: You know, I, there, there's so much I want to have you talk about as far as how to get beyond the stress to, so we can deal with the title of the book about ending financial stress. But So what, what do we start doing as parents? We, we first of all have to understand exactly a little bit more about what money is, right, and what it can do and what mm-hmm. it can't do. So why don't you give us a quick minute long overview of that.
3: Mm-hmm. So I think the first thing um, um, parents uh, need to do is recognize their own relationship with money. Um, Because the thing about money is that we think of it as this immutable thing in nature, but it's not. It's this construct. We have all collectively decided these little green pieces of paper are valuable. And if you think about it, that's kind of weird. (laughs) So because we have done that, we have um, money is vulnerable to having whatever we think about it. Placed on it, So, you know, our moral views of money, our social views of money are placed on it. So recognizing that things we think about money are not necessarily uh, natural um, is the first thing that parents need to do because that can help them recognize like, oh, my view of money as being freedom, my view of money as being a source of shame, my view of money as how you show love um, is not necessarily true. Uh, And so that's kind of the first thing, because like once you recognize your own relationship with money, you can find the beneficial aspects of your relationship with money to kind of uh, encourage and show to your kids. And the negative aspects of your relationship with money, you can kind of uh, keep an eye on to try to make sure you don't pass that along to your children
1: talking with Emily Guy-Burkin, who is the author of End Financial Stress Now, Immediate Steps You Can Take to Improve Your Financial Outlook. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue talking about uh, some of the issues about what money is and what it isn't, but want to get into some of the specifics about uh, the psychological reasons why you might be struggling with money or achieving a stress-free financial life. I'm Armand Brant. You're listening to Positive Parenting.
0: I don't recycle. I mean, we can just find another planet for your kids to live on, you know? Log on to yougottobekidding.org and learn about all the ways you can recycle. Hey, recycling's just not my thing. Don't be that guy. Log on to yougottobekidding.org.
1: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Emily Guy-Burkin, who's the author of End Financial Stress Now, Immediate Steps You Can Take to Improve Your Financial Outlook. So let's talk about, once we have a basic understanding of, of what money is and the things that may be contributing to our our views of it, what are we going to do to stop worrying about it so much? Because I think whether people have a lot of it or little of it, there is still a lot that that there is to worry about.
3: Oh, absolutely! Uh, and one of the things that I, you know, I want to make sure is clear in my book um, is that ending your stress does not mean ending your financial problems. There will always be financial problems, just as money will always flow in and out of your life. But you can uncouple the um, your stressful reactions to money from the actual uh, movement of money in your life so that you can, uh, when something happens that would normally cause you a great deal of financial stress um, can be something where you can like, okay, how can we fix this? What can we do with the situation as it is rather than immediately go into, oh my goodness, this is going to happen. And this terrible uh, outcome will occur because of it. Uh, And so it's really about taking uh, a step back from Uh, your emotional reaction to money so that you can um, have a logical and more rational response towards your money so that you can do the things that are going to uh, be the best for you financially.
1: Yeah, you know, there's, uh, you talk about some cognitive biases that cause a lot of financial stress. And there was one that I remember from a book called Predictably Irrational, that, Mm -hmm. and you do talk about something similar in the book where where he, he talks about how if somebody were giving you, if, if there were shirts that were for sale for fifteen dollars a piece instead of thirty dollars, you might go all the way across town to buy a shirt to save fifteen mm-hmm. bucks. But if you were looking at leather jackets and it was something, a leather jacket were marked down from five hundred dollars to four hundred and eighty-five, you wouldn't go all the way across town to save fifteen bucks. Mm-hmm. But it's the same fifteen bucks. It's just. In one case, it's 50 percent, and in one case, mm-hmm. it's 3 percent. So, I mean, what would you—how how do you explain that to people?
3: So one of the things that—and um, Predictably Irrational is one of my my uh, gateway <laughs> uh, books towards writing my book um, because it really blew my mind hearing about all of these different ways that— um, our brains are predictably unable to um, make the most intelligent and rational choices. Um, And so that's one of the things that I I like to really point out um, in End Financial Stress Now is that uh, these these cognitive biases are ways that our brain kind of sets us up to fail. Um, Just because our brain is making these kind of mental shortcuts to help us figure something out and uh, those rules of thumb do not always apply. So um, what's important is to remember that the, they, these kinds of cognitive biases exist and then try to do whatever you need to do to outsmart these cognitive biases. Um, so, uh, And that, that sort of thing is uh, its really important once you recognize them in yourself. You can be like, oh, yeah, that was really weird that I did that. Why did I do that? Okay, I'll know for the future that I won't. Uh, so the 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 one that I can remember doing a similar sort of thing, I was buying a shirt that I really wanted, um, and it was uh, there was a second shirt that I wasn't interested in, but if you bought one, the second was 50% off. So I bought the shirt I didn't want so that I could spend more than I wanted on the original shirt. And so, you know, thinking back on it, like, why did I do that? Um, it's because the, the the way the sale was uh, marketed to me um, just kind of short-circuited my, my logic um, to make me think, oh, yeah, I need to buy the second shirt that I don't really want that badly um, so that I can get this first shirt, even though I'm spending more money than I would have if I had just bought the first. And I recognize, okay, in the future, if I want something, I need to actually uh, plan on buying it. Like if uh, if uh, something is on sale, would I buy it full price? And uh, that's one of my own rules, is I see something, if it's on sale and I'm interested in it, I think to myself, would I buy this full price? And if the answer is no, then I know that that is a cognitive bias hmm. going on, uh, t- telling me I should buy something.
1: At, at the risk of stereotyping, somebody explained to me a little bit about how men and women sometimes have different ways of looking at money and that women are more likely to be intrigued by something that by by the percentage off as opposed to the hard cost of something. Do you think mm-hmm. that's true?
3: Um I do think that there there tends to be a, a difference and this is more anecdotal than than scientific. I've not I've not yeah. seen scientific evidence of, of this. Um so what I have noticed um, is that women, when they splurge, they tend to make small splurges throughout the year or throughout the month um, uh, and that add up to, you know, uh, quite a bit of money. Whereas, again, anecdotally, I've seen men tend to, like, all at once, splurge on something big. Hmm. And so I think that's part of the reason why there, there's a difference in percentage versus total money, in part because um, in, in this way, you know, if women are, you know, spending $20 here, $50 there, um, you know, they, they're more likely to, to focus on percentage, um, whereas men, if they're going to spend $500 on a video game system, um, will be more interested in, in uh, like, oh, and then I get X number of dollars off. Um, and it's partially because they're spending all at once, whereas the women are, are uh, kind of spending it throughout a longer period of time.
1: So what are some other issues that people should be looking at as far as combating the, the biases that are are driving them or some, some other other ideas you can give us to get rid of some financial stress?
2: Uh, well, there
3: there are two words in our kind of inner vocabulary that I think people should try to um, just um, dig out of what they say to themselves. And those two words are should and deserve. Um, so should is a word that we use to shame ourselves for not being what we think we should be. So, um, you know, there's, there's uh, when you say like, oh, I should not have lent money to my brother-in-law. Um, what you are saying is you're calling yourself um, kind of a name, basically, for for having done something. Even though you can't undo it, they're um, saying to yourself, I shouldn't have done that, doesn't actually fix the problem or move yourself forward. Or if you say to yourself something like, I should be able to change my own oil in my car and save money, um, that is, again, you're kind of shaming yourself for being someone who doesn't do this. Um, and so that you end that sentence there, I should be able to do this, or I shouldn't have done that. And instead what you should say is, but I didn't or, but I don't. So now what? And then that is the complete sentence when you say, so now what? And you can figure now. out what you're doing from there. Um, now the other end of the spectrum is the word deserve, um, and that is where you are telling yourself that whatever you're spending money on or whatever it is that you want to achieve um, is something that you have a right to. And the problem with the word deserve is that it, it always is defined as something that you lack. You know, you never say, you know, I deserve, um, you know, something that you already have in general, unless it's something you already have that you think that someone might be taking away or might be going away in some way. And um, what people will say, it's like, you know, I deserve this vacation. I worked so hard. And it's a way of justifying spending money that you don't have. All (laughs) you really deserve is freedom from financial stress. That's what you deserve. Um, So using the word deserve to justify purchases or spending that you you can't really afford is um, just kind of putting off the stress of it um, in a way and kind of – giving yourself permission to do something that you already know you probably can't afford or should maybe save up for or something like that and so it's good to just kind of like um examine anytime you use the word deserve to yourself like what does that mean why am I thinking that and you know what could I get how could I get the feeling that I feel like I deserve without spending money and that's a way that you can um you can uh, really examine it and get the sensation you want without getting into the debt or uh, spending down your savings or mm. whatever it is that might happen because of what you think you deserve.
1: You know, we only have just a couple seconds left, but in, in a couple of words, what's the most important piece of financial advice you would give people?
3: Uh, forgive yourself. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. A lot of financial stress comes from um, uh, feeling guilty shameful, unhappy, whatever, about, uh, about your money. So start with forgiving yourself and you can move forward from there.
1: Emily guy Birkins, the author of End Financial Stress Now, Immediate Steps You Can Take to Improve Your Financial Outlook. Emily, thanks so much.
3: Thank you.